the Artist Plunge podcast, a podcast exploring the curious relationship between artists and the other professions, day jobs, or past experiences that have allowed them to plunge into the art they create. I'm your host, Christy Darnell Batani. My guest today is poet and performance artist Mimi Allen. Frequently using Seattle as home base, Mimi's practice is based in conceptual performance art, photography, and video, often using walking, poetry, and ritual to explore human relationships. She has crossed the Pacific Ocean by sailboat twice, worked as a climbing ranger on Mount Rainier, hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and served in the Peace Corps in Poland, among many, many other things. So lace up your walking shoes and let's head to Seattle to see what Mimi is working on today. What is that sound? It is some, it's a rabbit eating a cat. It is, can it happen again? Yeah. It, it's, it's eating. It's, I don't know, Mimi, what is that? <laughs> well, it does kind of sound like a rabbit eating. No, that is um, me walking. Those are those are steps falling on those gravel. Those are and, steps and, on yeah. gravel. Okay, and so, yeah. well, first of all, where are you? Where are you today? Yeah, today, I'm in Seattle, Washington. I'm in a neighborhood called Madison Valley, and I'm in a house, <laughs> which isn't always the case. Is that home base for you? At the, I'm very much in transition and have been for quite a while. So this is home base for another week and then no, then everything gets moved. And then where is the future taking you or do you know yet? Yeah, exactly. It's slightly frightening. Uh, it's very possible and it's looking likely that I will regain possession of a boat that I sold um, seven years ago to friends. And they actually live in California and the boat is here in Washington and it's it needs a little better care than it's getting, and they are happy to have me come and um, take position and help um, maintain it, but we'll kind of co-share the boat. And if our listeners didn't hear you correctly, that was a boat, yes, correct? Yes, that a is small not, sailboat. Okay. Well, so we've, we've gotten off from your walking steps. Mm. Why are walking steps relevant to you or important to you in your practice? It wouldn't be uncommon for me to walk 50 or 100 miles a week. Uh, I find my stages. And you just said miles, right? Yeah, like yeah. not a 50 or 100 yeah. steps. Like, you know, I've got my Fitbit steps and I call them miles, <laughs> but they're steps, right? And so you said miles. It's how I investigate a place when I first arrive. I walk, I walk, I walk everywhere. I mean, much of my artwork involves walking. Not all of it, but you know, I've walked from the North Sea to the Mediterranean for a, a walking artwork in 2018. I've also gone by boat places, but um, walking has been a consistent um, piece of my investigation. And I don't know, I was a hiker. Um, I Perhaps that's where it came from, a hiker, a mountain climber. Walking takes you places and opens um, the investigation. I find places to make work. I, I make work outside a lot of it. Um, interior, yes, but also I am I am turned on by some spaces that I see and I think, oh yeah, this is it. Here it is. And I wouldn't find it if I weren't wandering. So it is not necessarily going from here to there, but wandering is the type of walking that I do when I'm making work. 
Otherwise, I'm commuting. For our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, you are a performance artist and a poet. And I have to say, we have had poets on the podcast, but you're our first performance artist. And so I'm curious, uh, for you, why have you used, why have you chosen performance art as a way of expressing what you want to say? I was in graduate school for poetry. Uh, it was a struggle. Um, I have this experience where I have this goal and I go and it doesn't meet my expectations and I'm digging deeply in it and it's not it, the reward that I thought was there for this was not there. And it's not as if I shouldn't have done it and I didn't get a great experience from it, but that's it. That's it. Uh, my goal um, from from all of this, my, my reward is to publish a book that 200 people will read and and possibly only people who are reading poetry and possibly only people in higher education. It didn't didn't seem to connect with the world that, that I really care about, which is outside, which is where I think common people walk. I mean, that would later be subject to question whether or not the world, you know, what my world was and who my audience was. But I came back to Seattle after that. I had to retreat from New York City. I couldn't afford to live there. I couldn't afford to eat. I was working and going to school and staying up until four in the morning every night trying to live two lives. And when I got back to Seattle, it, it sort of felt like it meant nothing that I got my graduate degree. And and I was imploding slowly. I took a job right away just to make money to pay rent. And finally, I'd say it was like six months um, where I imploded to this art project um, where I was the poet sitting at a desk at a lake um, where people congregate to walk and cycle. And um, it's called Green Lake. And I did this year-long project there, and I became a performance artist. So it wasn't like I had this idea I would be a performance artist. I was solving the problem. The problem was that uh, I needed to be relevant, and I needed people to understand that poets did real work and uh, needed to be heard and seen. And also, I was bringing the connection of poetry back to the people. That's what I thought I was doing. So everything kind of evolved from that. And, and what did what actually came of that, that project? What did you take away from that project? So nine hours a day, I mean, every Sunday. So every Sunday, nine hours, rain, shine, snow, holidays. Uh, and it was a four-mile walk there and a four-mile walk home. All kinds of rituals came of it. I was following and getting to know other artists um, through this project. And there was another artist, and I remember at the end of her year, she was being interviewed and asked, so what did you learn? And she didn't know. And I thought, like, three months or four months before mine was ending, I thought, like, I better know. I want to know. Uh, and and I started to do installation pieces as an investigation. I was also writing and blogging about this project. About 30 hours a week, I would spend blogging um, about the questions that came up. The very first day, I sat out there. So, okay, first, I, I, I need to get a desk there at this lake and it's four miles away and I don't have a car. Um, so I walk around the lake the first Saturday asking, will anyone hold on to my desk for me? I'm going to get this desk in this chair. And all the obvious places say no. I mean, the education center and the community center and the church and the school. I'm like, oh. so I was tired and I went to a, a supermarket, an organic supermarket called the PCC. And I love their motto and their ethic. It's very much yes. And within a minute of hearing the manager hearing my request. I was asking her, can I put a desk in your office for one year? And it's a tiny office. She said, yes. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure she understood what she was. What, are you sh sure? It's a, like a whole year? Like, yes, she said. So I would walk to PCC, carry my desk two blocks, sit out at the lake. And I really had no idea what would happen. And everything that happened was just 
unlike the poetry where I was trying to carve something out of rock that I knew was there, this was like anything could happen. I don't know. And I was just open and curious. So becoming a performance artist for me meant learning, uh, growing, um, failing constantly, and just being okay with that. Um, I sat there at the desk, and the very first thing I remember happening was a, a mother and a child walked by, not close. I was 40 feet off the path. I didn't want to impose upon people, but you could tell I was a poet. I had glittering letters that said poet, and I was sitting there. <laughs> the person, the, the child said to the mother, look, mom, poet. And I thought, it's working, it's working. <laughs> and while I know there are projects where people write poems for people or share their poetry with people, that was not my plan, and I never did that. I, I think one person through that entire year asked to hear a poem of mine. It was about where we're going, where our poets are, where our artists are, what we're doing here. It was an investigation that I wanted to um, invite people into. And of course, it became that there were times where there were 10 people sitting on the grass around me and we were all talking. I wasn't the teacher. I was just the point of inquiry that people could could join. So everything came out of that, all of my connections, art projects. Well, and that's such an interesting, you know, I know coming from some of the backgrounds that I have had in things like, well, certainly in the legal perfection, but also in advertising and other worlds, the deliverable is always such an, a focus for, you have a client and everyone wants to understand what's the deliverable. And we're all going to be clear on that at the outset of what are what am I going to get at mm, the end of this? Oh and so it's really hard to let go of that sort of mindset when it comes to art making. And so doing that project, mm -hmm. I, I know I would have had a really hard time with that, not knowing where is this going to go? How do I know when it's over? How do you know when it's over? Yeah. Do you set de uh, deadlines at the beginning how, for yourself, or how do you know? That, that is a, that is a big, big question. Yeah, right. You can say it's going to last the length of the song. It's going to last this year. Right. For me, so Green Lake has a circle around it. And people love to run it and walk it because it's two and a half miles. It's perfect kind of like meet your friend and walk around there. It's also where Seattleites go. It's not where tourists are going necessarily. So I knew I'd be meeting a public and it was a very diverse public. There were trans people, there were disabled people, there were people of all colors, um, you know, homeless people. I talked to lots of different kinds of people. So the end of the year, yeah, I had to, lots of people ask, so why not keep going? This is a great project. Like, yeah, it's a great project. I'm self-funding it. Like <laughs> the three months where I, I actually did projects that cost money, like I printed a hundred poems on a hundred t-shirts from a hundred local living poets who gave me poems and gave them free to runners as a way of connecting poets, living poets to living runners at a place where, yeah, they had to put the shirt on right then and run around the lake <laughs> to participate. Nice. And we had it like the poets were down there giving out the shirts and getting the right sizes for people. Um, and it was so exciting, but that was like, $700 and I was working in a boatyard. That was a huge amount of money for somebody. Right. Um, so I didn't understand public funding then. Um, and public funding is still a curious thing. I, I certainly started getting public funding, but it was not sustainable from, from where I, I was coming. So how does it end? I think you move on. It, it, it closes. You think, in order for it to be what it is, yeah. it has to end. Well, and there's something else that's going to follow. And so it can't sometimes get fully going mm. the next thing until you've put some closure on the one before. We're going to come back to that funding issue because yeah. that's a biggie. But <laughs> I, I want to keep exploring some of your work because mm. I really hope our listeners will go check out your website. It is so hard for me to pick one or two of your projects to talk about because every single one of them 
you know, at first glance, I'm like, well, that's interesting. And the more I read or the more I look at it, I'm like, that is fascinating. And I would just love to sit down with you and for hours listen to you talk about any of them. But I'm going to pick a couple random ones. They're not anything. Um, I'm not saying these are the best or anything. They're just kind of jumped out initially. Let's talk about sonnets in the sand, because that's an interesting yeah. one. Um, so for two weeks, you led a team of 15 uh, individuals who all wrote Shakespeare's sonnets in the sand at low tide, and then the surf washed them away. And so I, I've heard you say you always start with a question. So what was the question for this project? Uh, so the question was, what if, so I, I, I got this piece of information that might be common knowledge, but that, you know, the, the, the colonizers came with two things. And as they expanded West, they brought those two things. And it was the Bible and Shakespeare. They consistently came out with people. And I thought, well, and I was also being exposed to this, I, this Buddhist idea of your cup half full. And if you come with a full cup, you can't get any more. So it felt like people were coming, of course, with their full cup. And there was certainly, you know, a, a, a great deal of knowledge here that was just wiped away. Um, but what if we came? What if we said, okay, it's time to let Shakespeare go now and find out what's here or reinvestigate? Not even that it's possible, but what can we let go of Shakespeare without denigrating Shakespeare? So the idea was to get it out there. And um, I, I really, I, I struggled with the component, um, whether or not, yeah, investigating Native American culture and, and taking this to tribes. I felt like it was, it was white work um, that began with, with an investigation. And it was a beautiful investigation of words, of sand, of, of, of Shakespeare. The idea behind it was to let go of that and, um, open oneself up, empty the cup a bit. So even if we can't go back and, and absorb what was here, we can, we can be fresh now and see and, and be, be open. And what did you discover in doing that project? Oh, gosh. Um, so, so there were 15 of us, and I helped to transport people from Seattle back and forth a few times. So there was about 15 days we were out there. There was a mother and two daughters, and there were, um, yeah, a father and a son, and various other artists came out, and we would get our sonnet for the day and go off to the beach in Kalalak Beach um, on the Pacific Northwest. It's just gorgeous and um, really invigorating. It's three hours from Seattle. You've got to drive south around to Olympia and up to, out to the coast, and um, getting so deeply involved and in a physical way. I mean, my work had gone from, you know, there's something physical about writing and talking, of course, but when you take words to a physical level and take them out into the environment, uh, like the word time scribed at, at 16 feet tall, like making that and feeling that there's, there's this, there's this thing that happens when you move through something um, that is different than when you think through something. So watching a movie different than walking up a mountain. Um, so it it's a way of, of inscribing, I think, Shakespeare of, of love, of loss, and being present to what one is doing and releasing that you know, one will never forget that experience. Um, and there were artists who used a little crab claw to make very tiny um, words in the sand. So the, the different way that we approached it all. I love to, to, to work alongside of artists doing something similar and dialogue about it, but not necessarily be in close collaboration. Like mm -hmm. just 
yes, we, we're here to do to investigate something and we'll all investigate our own way. And so for a project like that, how do you document it or share it with others? How do you broaden the reach, I guess, of it? Yeah. So it was probably the time where um, I I wasn't working so hard to document my work. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I there were people present who documented with their photography, but I would say that was a, a, a less documented project. Um, I have I have done some work where there were documenters helping, but for an artist who's working, who's barely making ends meet, um, finding funding to do that is very difficult. And that's something I think I learned along the way. That was probably in 2012, 2013. And I was um, young in respects of how one documents. I was very good at promoting my work, like going out to cafes and meeting people. And I had my own events. So um, people were coming to them and had connections all over Seattle. But yeah, most of my work was documented because you know, somebody saw it as a public interest story and the, the newspaper saw it was in the newspaper, I was in television, so people knew my name and knew the work, but that piece, well, I don't think was covered, actually. Yeah. Well, let's, that's interesting. So let's jump up to 2018 to Tinder mm. Mountain Poems. Mm. So for that project, 1600 miles, maybe 70 mm-hmm. days of a solo journey around the Alps with a 10 pound typewriter. Mm-hmm. So maybe we start with, um, what was the question for that okay. for that piece? So the Alps were just a small part of it, the very end part of it. It started at the North Sea, which is Amsterdam, south of Amsterdam. Um, it's called the Hook of Holland. And there's a, a supposedly uh, a walk that's called the GR5. They call them the Grand Randonnée. Um, and there are different numbers. And that that is a lot of different numbers all put together to cross Europe. And not too many people have done it. Um, I applied for, for a residency in uh, Switzerland and I didn't get it. (laughs) And I thought, how can I do this anyway? Um, I've asked some other artists what they do when they don't get a grant. Do they ever do it anyway? Or do they just find, find something else to do? And there are certain people who are, you know, know what they're going to do and they find funding for it versus sometimes I will come up with a project in order to fulfill a grant. I think I've stopped doing that because that started to feel a little bit manipulated. Mm-hmm. But at the time I was looking for opportunities and that looked like a, people were sending it to me saying, Hey, this looks like you. And so I was like, Oh yeah, that sounds great. So I applied, didn't get it. And as I was applying for it, I noticed that there was a mountain called Mount Tender or Mont Tendre nearby. And I thought, Oh, what I'll do for this project is I'll take a typewriter and I'll walk up the mountain every day and I will um, investigate um, movement on the mountain that's sourced from the mountain. Well, they didn't like that or whatever. So I thought, how can I do this anyway? And then I found out that there's this trail that goes right by there called the GR5. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I could have it as my halfway point and I could arrive there. And this was all happening just, uh, I connected with the election in 2016 when I and some of my friends were freaking out about the fact that we had created this reality that we really weren't aware of. And I thought I needed to change something about this reality. And for me, that was changing the dream and investigating what it was that I had been saying yes to that brought us to this place. Like, what have I overlooked uh, here? And there were lots of things that I've said yes to that I think, oh, yeah, I'm complicit in all of this. So the question was, you know, I want everything to change around me. I want everyone to change around me, but I can't 
can I change myself? Can I do anything? Like, what if I tried to change just one thing? What if, so this was a project about changing one thing about myself. And it started with a question um, that I could ask myself and others could ask themselves is, if you could change just one thing about yourself, knowing that it would change for everyone, everywhere, if you changed it in yourself, what would that one thing be? And I posed that question to whoever got the news about this and uh, asked people to write a letter to themselves, to their own tender heart. Give me the letter and I would carry all these letters with me on my walk. And they would help me stay focused and support me as I walked towards this mountain. And when I got to the mountain, I would sit in meditation and I would change that thing. And then I would walk to the sea and let all that go and let my responsibility to the people go. And um, I didn't have a phone that was, you know, some people get maps on their phones. I didn't have a map. I didn't have, uh, I had a compass. I had no paper map whatsoever. <laughs> and somehow I walked from, you know, not always on the trail, but mostly on the trail from the North Sea to the Mediterranean, over the Alps, um, through the snow, and did find my way to Tender Mountain. I mean, every day was incredible when you when you when you're walking in the back country or just walking and don't know where you're going i'm going southwest and you know that you find it is a miracle <laughs> that you find water that day or a place to stay that night is a miracle i never knew where i was going to stay in the mountains it's easy right you stay where you want to stay um, and in europe it's easy to find food every day you're going to go through an amazing town with a castle and a bakery and uh, water flowing in the center of town so Doing something in the United States like that might be a little bit more difficult. And that's perhaps one of my challenges that face me in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I remember hearing about that project that um, you knew that, that for that project, you needed a polka dot dress and red hair. <laughs> and I'm curious, what did those things signify for you? Right. I mean, that's sort of like knowing the deliverables. Um, I, I there's There are several artists who I love. Um, one who's no longer with us is named Mark Balmer, Mark Balmer, B-A-U-M-E-R. He walked barefoot across the country. He's, he was a prolific poet. He was struck and killed on his 100th day. But what I really appreciated about his, he was a prolific blogger and everything. And he talked and talked and talked and took photographs. And it was funny. And he didn't know why he was walking across America barefoot. I mean, he was raising money for the Fang Collective. And he wanted to raise awareness about, about um climate issues but he wasn't talking to people about them he was just walking barefoot across the country and he didn't know why and he was able to say that so i don't know why red i don't know why my hair had to be red but i just knew they did the, those are sort of in in impulses or um yeah the information that you feel and they help guide you but yeah i was looking for the dress and sort of like right now i'm looking for the apron and the way to carry my mother's ashes that's something moving forward. I need that before I can go. I, ne I need when I make my work, I need to n be able to write it down. I need to know at least what the, the parameters are. I don't need to know what the end goal is going to be, but I need to know where I'm going, where I'm starting, you know, what I'll be wearing. And then the idea can fly and everything can go differently. Well, I love that for you, you know, as, as a poet, there's a a visual component mm. still to it. And I love that on your website, you share your notebooks. That was sort of a, a, a revelation to me to see that, you know, as a writer and a performance artist, you have a sketchbook practice, frankly, better than mine. <laughs> and it was very inspiring. So I encourage people to go look at those. Do you still keep sketchbooks on a regular basis? Uh, in 2015, when I sold my boat and got rid of my office and went to help my mother, 
because uh, I've been nomadic, uh, transient, I move a lot. I mean, I was in Seattle for 15 years, but I moved around a lot in Seattle. And I have never had a storage space and I don't have a home and I don't have furniture. I, I came to the place where I decided to destroy most of those. I think some of them I sent to a friend who said, I'm keeping these for you. But I went through them all. And but but that was a serious practice. And no, I don't have a notebook practice now. I think so many things change as I move along that I'm curious. I'm curious when I see an artist, I say, you don't paint anymore? What do you mean you don't paint? Okay, you need to paint. But I understand now how certain things have a time frame, and I'm always going to be writing. I'll always be a poet. Um, it's a main component of much of my work, but I don't know where the notebook went. Yeah, it's not there right now. When you write now, do you keep them? Uh, how do you store or save those those ideas? I know it's tough. It's tough. I took apart an art book um, recently, and I have that in a in a folder, and I type. I feel typing so t I moved from writing by hand to writing with my non-dominant hand for 10 years with my left hand that was part of the homakura was like I was going to pare myself down to the essentials and see what I could change about myself um or what wasn't me and so writing with my left hand certainly made me process things differently and more slowly and then moving to the typewriter meant you couldn't erase things you, you had to make it work and it really slowed me down again um, so I mostly when I'm composing, unless I'm trying to get my thoughts to someone, if I'm composing, it's um, on a typewriter. And oftentimes those become letters that go to friends. But I do have a folder full of paper. And I've got lots of materials from like when I went to Tender Mountain Poems. I have all of them waiting. Like I have lots of lots of material waiting to be put into a book. And that's a stage. I'm not sure when I'm going to get to that stage where I'm ready to focus. I think some stability is required to do that. Um, but I've just been one who wants to generate, generate, generate. And that is a problem. When does one stop and focus on you know, generating something else and sit back? Um, and maybe that's coming. I'm not sure. But I've got a lot of that ahead of me. Right. Well, on Tender Mountain Poems, you you did, I know, document oh, yeah. it to the extent, like, I've seen the YouTube video, which is, I mm. really, really enjoyed. I, was there any other part of that project that you uh, either tried some sort of documentation or experimented with that? I accidentally met that man who was up at one of the um, auberges, and it's like, I've, I stayed at two auberges towards the end, and... He heard about me and said, I need to document this person. He was starting to shift his documentation from just the sheepdogs and the, 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 the high mountain um, work to people coming through on the trail. And you got one of those sheepdogs in the video, which is or some sort of dog that joins you. It's very miraculous. He just comes to share the moment. There were donkeys. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What a, what a wonderful place. Like we need some of those in the U.S. where you just hike along the beautiful Alps and there's wine and there's a salad right. and soup. And yeah, the hard life of the animals up there too. So that was not intended. It was beautiful. I'm so glad that happened. I think that was kismet. But um, the way I had been documenting that was sending posts, um, posting to Facebook, typing, um, responding to people. And people would pick up. So I would leave the letters as I read the you know, I, I read Sheila's letter in this particular space and I sat with my typer and I responded to that letter and I left her letter in that place. And those places were all very significant to me. 
not beforehand, but they became significant in old blown up church or the top of a mountain or um, a river or this town that used to be a salt mine and became part of the story of that. And I would, I wrote to each and every person and let them know where it was opened. And I gave them my response and um, yeah, the end result will be to collect them all into a book and then publish it for a full reading of all of them, plus the experience. That's so generous. That's, that's so really, really generous. I, yeah. I, I want to go back to you mentioned with the switch to a typewriter and, yeah. and that it slows you down. Do you view that, is that slowness a good thing or is it a hindrance? Part of it is an inquiry. How will my writing change? It's so, I don't, I don't know, but I think it's good. I like, I like the result. Uh, the result feels um, potent to me. And that's what matters. I th- I, 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 when I moved from poetry, page poetry, to performance art and written, and it could be like inspired by literature or creating, um, writing around it, the, the poetry just moved. I think poetry can look like something versus be uh, words on a page. It's an idea of how we see. Well, the, the slowness of the typewriter, and and and, and actually, I realize even in fr- in asking that question, good or yeah, bad, yeah, you know, I think that it's a very non-Buddhist. <laughs> that shows you how much I've how far I've gone in my transcendental yeah. judging it again. Is this good or bad? Instead of it just yeah. is, and is it different than the other? And in what way is the observation? Yeah. You know, you'd think as an artist, I could yeah. be a little further along that path, but still, there's this. I think desire sometimes to categorize no, it. That's, that was the problem with graduate school and every writing group I was a part of before that was somebody would tell you the word the shouldn't be there. And you're thinking well, they're missing everything here. We just need support. Um, and it wasn't until I came out of there, started doing the, it was called the Poetess at Green Lake, that year long project, which was my kind of like shift to performance art and meeting people who made performance art and mixing that with writing. Um, it wasn't until then that the writing, it, it wasn't about the end result. The end result was fine. It could be shared. It, it was no better or worse than anything, but it was about the process of making it. It was about the development. And then I became more interested in dialoguing with people. So I was, I was a poet who was given opportunities to, like, to, to curate at city city council meetings and um, to come into the Seattle Art Museum and bring two poets in each month. And I disrupted as much as possible. I could do that. I wanted to disrupt the poets. Um, these aren't on my site because there's actually no documentation of them. How could the Seattle Art Museum not have documented this work? I don't know. <laughs> it was ridiculous. But I went in and I brought 100 poets into the um, Seattle Art Museum with me. And we occupied the um, the escalators. We made an impasse of poets. That was the title of my my event. And we had five different places where we had impasses. And for three full minutes, we occupied the escalators. No one could get up and down. And each poet was asked to memorize one of their own poems and murmur it so only they could hear it, not so that someone else could hear it. And, and for me, they were like sticking points to a poet because of so many open mics that I went to where the poet just wanted you to hear two more poems. They were feeling very needy and not generous. It wasn't about the audience, it was about them. And I wanted to say like, okay, you don't even memorize your poems. You're not even performing them first off, second off. It's all about you. What if we were all here and it's about, it's about the poem? In a way, I was trying to re-educate poets, but I was also trying to offer a different um, possibility 
So there were two other um, major events for me that happened there. I got paid $200 for and put about a month of work into. One of them was um, I met a blind man at a, at a cafe one day. And I was at the point where anyone I met was going to be part of an artwork that I was doing. Like, are you an artist? He knocked over my coffee. I'm like, are you an artist? He's like, well, yes, I am. I'm like, oh, okay, we need to do something. Um, and so I was, I had this really, you're supposed to bring two poets in. You're supposed to stand at a poem and, and podium and read the poems. That's what it normally is to do this event. But I'm like, no, no, no. So I got um, five different people, artists and children, um, to bring this man in to see a show. And they would explain five different paintings to him or five different works of art. It was called Target Practice. And um, like Andy Warhol works were there and people who were destroying their canvases and Yoko Ono had a piece there, a hammer piece. And then after that, he was going to go back into his studio. He was a musician and make them into music. Hmm. And then after that, he was going to come back in and he was going to play the music in the forum, in the, in the lobby. And um, then another group of 10 or 15 poets were there writing from his, um, his playing and translating that back. So it was a translation project across mediums and no documentation, but it was an amazing event. All kinds of people would give me their experience of how valuable that was for them. And um, certainly for me as a curator, it felt so exciting to see things happening and to see people engaged and to see that kind of work um, being picked up and see children involved and that raises an interesting question. I think right now, a lot of time there's an emphasis to like broaden the reach. You know, how can you reach more people with something? And maybe, maybe more isn't always better. Like, why is more better? Thank you. Thank you. That's the one of the problems with my grants is the deliverables. You know, so you go into it and you think you know what you're going to do. But of course, after doing the work, you find out that it wants something different, but they still want the deliverables. I did a project at an architect firm. It was the largest grant I got, not very large, but large compared to my other things. So about $5,000 plus to go for a month and be the poet in residence at an architect firm. Um, I wanted, I was looking for a corporation to see whether, you know, if you had a poet working at a corporation, whether there could be a, a, an exchange there and there could be mutual beneficial um, things happening. So I talked to someone who knew an architect. I met with him. He's like, yes. So I came in. They didn't have to do anything other than give me a, a desk, but they, they brought me to everything, every meeting. They made everything accessible. It was really awesome. And, um, and at the end, I mean, all kinds of amazing things happened in there. There were a hundred employees, right? And there was um, an area around it. They built the entire block. And so there were little shops and I went into all the shops and made things happen in the, in the alleyways. So more than just the people inside were affected. There was a radio interview done about that piece. And um, I blogged about the piece and I had two talks in the neighborhood, but they still said it wasn't enough. I needed to go. This, this is a contentious point for me. They wanted me to go to a disadvantaged neighborhood to bring my art there with it. To, and I thought, well, you need to fund people in disadvantaged neighborhoods. We need to like understand why we have disadvantaged neighborhoods. It feels false for me to do this in particular thing. Like, and I think that we're starting to do that now. We're starting to put funding into um, areas that have and people who have been overlooked um, by that system. Thankfully, finally, and it feels right. Like, I don't apply for quite a few things because a white woman has already been selected. They can't select another white woman, and I don't want to be even in competition for that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, wanting wanting those deliverables and how can you offer to be 
to have integrity with the work itself. And I find the easiest way is to just be um, an autonomous artist to, to not apply for those things to make it. And so find other funding and that's either work, <laughs> which has been my answer recently or um, crowd fund source, um, source from friends and but yeah, keeping the overhead low and doing things that feel valuable to me is more important than getting the grant, I guess. So I, I was going to dig into this deeper now. Let's go since we're already here. Like, so what other kind of things do you do to financially support yourself so that you can do these projects mm-hmm. that are, that stay true to your vision for them? I keep a very low overhead. <laughs> That's the first thing I do. Not having any storage. Like, you know, I think about people uh, in my family and elsewhere who just have so many bills. I have, I am now debt free. I paid off my student loan. I don't have a phone. I don't have a car. I don't have furniture. So th- for me, that's been my answer since becoming a, a, a professional artist. And that has not been a good answer. That's because I live in a place where it's not affordable to live. Um, you know, I did live in a studio that suddenly went up $200 and the little artist's office went from three to five. And I'm sure it's like 700 for that same studio now. Seattle is just burgeoned. Mm-hmm. And you know, the incomes can't compare with the artists and the artists leave. And so I don't know that I'm going to be able to, I didn't want to come back here, but it was, it was the obvious place to come and make money because I have connections and friends here and it's a gorgeous place. I mean, I love sailing and climbing and you're right, you're right in the mountains in all directions. So it's hard to deny that, but how do you do it? Um, My answer recently has been make money and then go do something because my things are full on, you know, five months, um, I could make work around a static schedule. And I, I did start that way. But hmm, it's not what I want to do. Well, I know you've you've done things like you've worked as a climbing ranger, and you've been in the Peace mm-hmm. Corps. So when you find these other jobs to provide income, it, I, you may have just answered it. it. Are you looking for something that can be project-based work so that then you can leave it and go do what you need to do or want to do? Or how, how do you decide what these other income sources, what they are and how they impact your artwork? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it has just been very organic um, and I see what is possible. So I mean, and also circumstantial, you know, my mother lost her housing in Pennsylvania and I, I thought, come out here, mom, and we'll figure it out. And for a while, for a while, we'll live together. And I, I sold the, um, the boat and I, I got rid of my studio and tried to work on a place and it didn't work out. It was really <laughs> the hardest thing ever. Um, mom and I love each other very much, but it was really hard to make that work. And it fell through and I was house sitting in the meantime. And then it just became like, oh, Everybody wants me to house it nonstop. Like it's very rare. There's a couple days in between. It's not a year house, but it's a month and then it's three weeks and then it's two weeks and there's an overlap and it's not convenient, but I can make art 24 seven walk dogs twice a day that I love, but you know, I can make art. And so for three years, that was my answer. That's not a good answer, Mm -hmm. but it was my answer. I became it was a prolific arc of video art that I made. I was working 17 hours a day. It was definitely manic, not healthy, but I, I, it was an arc that I was on and I needed to be on. I'm not sure what that loop meant. Um, I'm maybe at the end of it. I'm maybe making one or two a day, um, but nothing like that. So I feel like I follow those things. I've got this performance art that I think about 
that is a problem that I'm having that I find a solution to when I go out and do this thing, like Tahoma Cora, walking around Mount Rainier or prostrating around Mount Rainier or those things, I'm solving a problem that I see in me and in the world that I can participate in a question, like how can we participate in the sacred in the landscape? That's the question. I want to go out and do that. And can I get people interested in participating somehow? But the other things are imposed upon me, the video art and the, um, the, self-portrait project before that they I have to do them if I don't do them I'm very angry I everything else falls I don't need to see friends I don't need to do anything else that has to happen and so those come and I do them and they're part of who I am and they're part of the work I think all of the work from the performance which is very nourishing the minute I step into a performance art work whether it's a day a week or three months I know who I am. I have no questions. I am a solved person and I'm completely happy in, in the inquiry. And, and then I come out of it and I have to grapple with who am I and um, what am I going to do? And why would anyone be interested in this? How am I going to fund this? Like the person in the artwork doesn't think about that at all. Um, I've, I can make an, uh, like a six month artwork happen for $5,000, um, which is not ideal. I could make an amazing project happen for 10 or $20,000 too. Um, so finding a way to get there maybe is the, is the goal. Um, but, uh, I spent a lot of time at a desk looking for funding and that, that in the end, war I think warped my artist. I was answering calls and, and I thought like, well, you want to bring an artist in here to solve your social issues and you have a homeless issue and you have, these are health issues you have and an artist coming in for a thousand dollars isn't going to solve this. And you're also giving me a dangerous and an unsafe and an un unfriendly place to work in. And it's not fair. I feel like it's used in the artist. So I, I moved away from mm -hmm. that. But I used to think that, oh, I got this amazing opportunity in the paper and they're covering me. And I got this on my, who cares about my resume? It's like seven pages long. I've done all these amazing things. It's not getting me any jobs. It got me, it got me to learn a lot about my life and about the people around me and how it is. I, that I can be seen, that I can see people. Like you just, you learn so much about just the red dress. You know, I don't think anyone saw the red dress, but they saw the typewriter. As a performance artist, you need a talking point. You, people need to know you're doing something. Otherwise, mm -hmm. maybe, I mean, Mark Balmer had bare feet. People were trying to give him shoes the whole, so there was something there, or they were calling the police on <laughs> him saying there's a vagrant, right? Yeah. Um, because you can't be vagrant in the United States. In yeah. Europe, you can say I'm nomadic, and that can be a cool thing because you're really just going to be in Spain or in the Netherlands or somewhere else. Yeah, they, they, they have common language and common money there. But here, it's a bad thing. There, so, yeah. so facing this country, it's not something I wanted to do in 2019, 2020. But I came home because my visa was up and I needed to make, you know, make a, a shift. I did come home and I don't know, I'm still, I'm in a transition of understanding how it is they can be an artist here. And maybe it's going to be a lifelong question. <laughs> well, I'd like to talk uh, for a minute about Loveline, a project that you mm. started, I know, in early 2020. And um, quickly, I guess it was, so it was right before the pandemic became yeah. rea reality. And I think you had planned a 30 day, 20 mile walk, um, looping the letters love, the word love throughout the city of Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? And talking to people along the way with uh, a rotary telephone. 
Um, so I, I want to hear about that project and what it was about, but also how it got impacted mm. by COVID and the timing mm-hmm. of all of it and what happened to that. So, Okay. Well, it goes back a little bit further. Hopefully I can nutshell this, but um, in order to solve my problem of coming back from the mountain that I, I got this problem in 2011, that I went to the mountain and I went for three months and I had this most amazing wake up experience. Then I came back to the city and nothing made sense anymore. Reentry problems. And I was inventing this way to cure that problem. Like I needed to become a new artist and how could I do that? And I came up with a system and it took 10 years to get there, but I was going to go to Paris and then I was going to go to Mongolia and I was going to study at clown school in Paris to prepare myself to meet shaman in Mongolia. And that was like what I was going to do. And eventually I got there. And after a Mongolia, which was in 2019, um, I was lucky to survive that experience, I think. And I, I went to France and Estonia. Can we pause? Can we just yeah. pause? Okay. So why did you need the clown school to meet the shamans? Right. right. Oh, please answer that question. I studied a lot about shamans <laughs> and how it is that shamans get selected in various cultures and how they get identified. And in certain places, uh, they're identified by a sickness and by self-healing. In other places, um, it's they are identified by the group and then they are publicly humiliated and they are spat upon and they have to survive a night underground and um, they are ostracized in order to be the healer. And I thought, well, I'm not going to self-proclaim myself a shaman. Like I wanted to, to be a healer and to see myself as someone who could take energy from the landscape and heal people. And, and I, yeah, I also wanted to meet with a shaman. So I thought to myself, okay, what can I do to publicly humiliate myself? And, the only thing I can think is clown school. Well, it wasn't exactly clown school. It was physical theater, but everyone I know who knows the school, it's like one of the best physical theater clown schools in the in the world. It's called um, the Jacques Lecoq um, School of Physical Theater. It's in France. And so that's where everyone said, oh, if you want to be humiliated, go there. And it wasn't actually as humiliating as other things that have happened. But it was part of <laughs> what I had. I thought there's a little door in Paris through which I need to go in order to get to Mongolia. It was just this this poetic imagination that I had of how I could prepare to do something because sort of like when I was at the landscape, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the architect firm, like I couldn't just drive there. Did I have a car at the time? I don't think I did, but take the bus there. I needed to get there by some magical means. So I would row my boat across Lake Union. It was January. (laughs) It was dark in the morning. I would row my boat there and it was the most amazing way to get to work. I had my fishing boots on and I'd walk the last 15 minutes in and I had gotten to this place where I was the poet in residence at at an architect firm. Like, I don't think you can just arrive places. You need to, you, to, to, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to just fly in. I want to walk and like really experience the entry. That's part of maybe it's the Gaston Bachelard in me. The, 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 the ritual of entering is very important to me, how yeah. you come in and yeah. how you go out and whether you, whether you close it and that you know what you're doing. Yeah. So, so the Mongolia after, after the six month of teaching literature in Mongolia, which is how I got to Mongolia, I, I left and spent two months kind of recovering and, um, I don't know if you know, you can, as a U.S. citizen, you can be in Europe for 90 days, twice a year. And so I took advantage of that and went to two artist residencies that I knew about where you can just say, I'd like to go. And they say, we have space and you can go. It's not a hierarchical place. It's fabulous. It's called PAF, PAF, in Saint-Herme, France. And I went and spent a month in the summer there. It was amazing summer. I, I, 
in the summer, it's very active and there are people teaching classes. So there was a professor from South America, from Argentina, I think, teaching physics for artists. But there was also a group, a performance art group that was like deeply into the erotic of the forest. And we spent several nights in the forest alone, like walking around, like understanding the erotic and performing. That was humiliating at some point. Um, <laughs> so I spent a month there and then I went up to Estonia where there's a similar residency program um, purchased by the same person. It's an old school versus an old convent. And I spent a month there just, of course, making art all day long every day, but meeting amazing artists. And, and then my father died, who I didn't have any relationship with, but it was time for me to go back to the United States. And when I was there, I was preparing, how am I going to go back to the United States? What am I going to do there? I don't want to go there. I don't like the way things happen there. Uh, um, I got a tattoo. There was a, a tattoo artist at, and in Saint-Arme, France, at that first residency space. Uh, brilliant being a dancer, uh, uh, an artist, a uh, jewelry maker, just an amazing person. And he was giving tattoos to help pay for his residency and his living. And I got a tattoo. I thought long and hard about what I was going to get. And I got, it looks like a parenthesis on, on the top of each of my feet. And put together, it makes a circle. The idea is that it's a perfect circle. Mm -hmm. And if I'm standing still, I am whole and at peace. And if I'm moving, then I'm kind of in between that, sort of like the breath space. And so that was, that was a symbol that I made for myself on my body that was precursor to love line. And love line is actually supposed to happen across the United States. I want to mm. write the word. So I see it as human or walking graffiti. Um, and it feels very feminine in that aspect versus like carving and, and painting things like Francis Alice, mm. you know, dripped his paint. I, I want to walk it. And I also, I want to know why I'm walking mm -hmm. it too. Maybe that's why I, it's hard to go. But I also think well, there's not going to be a cafe every two days. <laughs> what if I, there's going to be a place where I'm not going to have water for, you know, I realize people walk across the, the country sometimes like push a baby carriage in order to have the things that they need, like the food and the water for times where there's not going to be any. So I don't know how I'll make that happen, but that was the goal to face America by actually mm -hmm. really deeply facing America with love um, as a disruptor of space and figuring out how these places along the L O V E in script, of course, um, from mm -hmm. probably the South um, West corner to the Northeast corner of the U S how they all connect those places. And uh, mm -hmm. so I got this opportunity um, to do a residency at Elsewhere Museum in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I flew in and I walked from the airport 13 miles into town. I really got to know the place, right? Of course you did. It was raining very hard. I wasn't ready for that. So I had to get a trash bag from the airport and put it over me. And this amazing woman stopped her car. She had a baby in the car and she offered me an umbrella. It was certainly my mother protecting me because she would do that. Mm. She had umbrellas and her extra umbrellas for people. And I was like, wow, thank you. And some other people asked me if I was okay if I needed a ride. Of course, you're not okay if you're walking. There's something wrong in this culture with people walking. But I, I decided what I would do there was to do a, a, a sample love line. And I have thought that approaching it city by city and going to – I had made a list of cities that needed I needed to address with love to understand what was going on in that city. And there's so much going on in Greensboro. It's so segregated and the, the history is, is so difficult there. So part of it was attending meetings um, at the, at the local community there who was, was 
doing reparations or working on reparations from the 1970s shootings and going to the IRA center and helping prepare dinners and going to the bookstore where um, Ed Brilliant would talk to me about Thich Nhat Hanh and how things are are working on the streets there um, and how people are holding the, the society together. And I had to, I had to pull something out of the um, space to take with me. And the phone seemed the obvious choice. Somebody had jacked it so you could plug in uh, an iPhone and make it make sounds. And so, yeah, how does a white woman walk through, um, you know, North of the tracks? It's, it's two story homes and um, probably affluent and whiter and south of the tracks. It's one story homes, lots of chain link fence and community um, tenors, chickens, people working on cars outside, walking, people walking, not walking dogs or with trekking sticks. Yes, definitely blacker, browner folks. So how is it that someone in that area wants to talk to me? What, what, so, mm-hmm. so I think my answer for that was that I could ask them to participate in something. I could collect something from them. I would be learning. And really, it was definitely a, a me, me, me learning um, how it is that I can just be in a space and what I can learn and what people have to share with me and whether people will share with me and how I can, yeah, how I can be there and be seen there as, as I don't know, an ally maybe. That's less important that I'm an ally. It's just that I'm there, I'm witnessing, and I'm moving in the space. That the space exists. Like sometimes when the artist goes into a space that is invisible, it becomes visible to their community because nobody goes down there. People will tell you not to go down there. But if you go down there, then suddenly it's like, oh, oh, this person's inviting me. She's chosen my space. And so then were they able to leave messages on or, or leave talk and have it recorded on the rotary phone? Yes, yes. So I invited people to record first because sometimes they would get intimidated by what they heard. If they listened, they said, so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm collecting messages along the love line. You're on the <laughs> O and I'm walking through the city. And um, the idea is that we just share messages neighbor to neighbor, like just a simple hello, or maybe, you know, it's what you need to hear on a day where you're not feeling so great and you want some support. And um, I'm just trying to connect people across this line and who knows who they are. And um, people would say something. I mean, I, I, yeah, some people were intimidated to say something, but many people weren't. And then if they didn't want to say anything or they did, I could say, like, would you like to receive a message? And they could, I had many messages in there and they could receive messages. And, and there were, I mean, I knew all the unhoused people. I knew many of the unhoused people by the time I left. When I was walking down the street, I would say, hey, and people would say, hey, to me. Um, and it didn't mean I have the resources to change their situation necessarily, but it felt really good to know Robin and worry about him. I gave him my YMCA card and I don't know that he could use it or not, but he told me he was named after Robin, Robin and Batman. And he didn't like that. He was pushing a cart. And I, I gave him a hug and I knew you weren't supposed to do that. It was the beginning, the very beginning of COVID. And I'm like, I don't care this. I want to hug this man. Uh, so connecting, me connecting and, and recognizing my whiteness in a space that is, is yeah, I'm complicit in was, is the beginning, a very beginning for me. And I, I think it's, it's hard after George Floyd. I mean, it's ridiculous that it, that, that it took George Floyd to know, to, to think that I can make art that's not, doesn't recognize our situation, right? Doesn't, doesn't recognize my privilege, doesn't recognize that my audience hasn't 
always been the bigger audience. It's been a very select audience in a select space. Right. Uh, and do you feel that is that impacting part of your struggle to segue to the next project, to this in-between time, being between projects? I do. I do think um, that's part of it, figuring out what it is you can make, you know? Um, yeah. So, so I, I look back at some of, of the energy I put into art and some of the things I did, and I think, I think I come up with these projects, and I think, well, why would I do that now? And I look back and I think that was valuable. What I did was valuable. And I can't believe I had all that energy to do all that. Like, my God, 13 hours and um, I, I bicycle and carry a lot of stuff on my bike. Like, what was I thinking? But it was great. But I wouldn't do it now because it doesn't seem worthwhile now for me. What seems worthwhile is less showy, I think, less clever. Mm. I think clever was something that I got at some point. I realized, oh, clever art. Like, there's no substance. And I think really the going to, to Mount um, Tahoma, which we call Mount Rainier, um, and doing a prostrating pilgrimage and deciding to have my spiritual awakening there was that all the things we call art here are just kind of clever ruses to, to compete with one another for some prize. And there's really something more powerful there and more transformative there that doesn't get the show and doesn't get the you know, as soon as I started making that kind of art, it became less interesting to, um, to the press, um, hmm. or to the, to the, to the people giving out money. It, it became less interesting, but it, it was powerful for me to connect with people through that and to, to have more than me just go on that walk across Europe. Yeah. You know, I went on that walk with people who were suffering from alcoholism and some people who were suffering from the death of their mother and people who were, really what they're all asking for. And I was asking for it too, is to learn how to love ourselves. Mm -hmm. And every letter brought me to tears and thought like, how is it that, that I can love you so much and you can't love yourself. And the same with me, you know, how can we get there? Mm -hmm. Did that influence your self-portrait series? This, this search for self-compassion or was that a step towards self-compassion? You know, I just, I, I, I look at all those photographs, even at the time, and I don't know who that person is. Um, I think there was a person that could come out through the video and the, the self-portraits that was a powerful me, and especially when I was making the video series. I'm going to eat bacon. I'm going to drink two cups of coffee. It seems a silly thing, but normally I'd be thinking, oh, I should drink tea. I should get off coffee, <laughs> whatever it was. I was unapologetic about saying, no, I don't want to have dinner with you. <laughs> no, I don't have time. I'm going to do whatever I knew to, need to do to make my art. There was a powerful feminine me under me that could come out through that and I could explore and that powerful me needed to make work. And even if I'm in the center of Paris, I'm going to climb up on a statue. The normal me would not do that. I mean, there would be no reason to, but the artist me needed to do that. And I had no problem doing it. And, you know, yeah, hanging from ropes under a bridge, carrying mannequin legs, like four miles, a Christmas tree over my shoulder. Like I was directed by some inner force. Um, so the, the portrait series, I was, I was amazed at who, who that was. I thought she was beautiful. I thought she was powerful. And I don't feel that. And I don't know when that, that shift could take place. And I don't know if it's a, a common problem or if it's a me problem. It's probably both. Um, but how is it that, yeah, I, I, even looking back as a teenager, as a 20-year-old, think, did we all know how amazing we were back then? Did we all know how fantastic and 
good looking and fun and funny we were, I think we all felt, uh, I feel like this might be in the United States, it might be the competition here, that we all felt that somebody else was the cool, important, special person. Having spent some time in Poland and uh, where there's a common enemy, and the common enemy is the government, mm-hmm. <laughs> you all work together. And uh, it's not a competition like who has the better shoes among mm-hmm. us. It's like, how can we all get past this course? Right. <laughs> or, how, you know, kids were more likely to step up and sing a song in class. Nobody was outing anybody. Um, and, and it felt, yeah, more generous in a way to have to work together yeah. that way. Now, and I wanted to be living in a world like that. And I'm a white woman of European descent. So for being in Europe for me was different than, of course, if I were a black American or an African American or Syrian there. So I'm, I'm not talking universally here. I'm talking about my experience. But in Europe, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel threatened by anything. People were telling me what to be worried about. The wolf up in the mountain. Like, really? There's a wolf? I'd like to meet that wolf. <laughs> like, that'd be amazing to see a wolf. Or they'd say, don't get down by the river. Aren't you afraid? Like, afraid of what? Like, I wasn't afraid. I do have fears, but I wasn't afraid of all the things people told me to be afraid of. And part of it was because it seemed like everyone was my uncle and my aunt. I mean, really, you couldn't go to a place. I remember getting to a campground. I walked forever and I found that there was this campground on a farm and I was like, okay, I got there and I just laid down. I had a bivy and I didn't have a tent and people, I heard a car come I'm like, Oh God, they're going to come and they're going to tell me that I can't be here. I need to pay money or something. Like they're so tired of lying down. It's like, hello. And they said, you can't stay here. I'm like, Oh, they're like, no, you need a bed and a tent. We're bringing you a bed and a tent. And then the next door neighbor brought dinner. And I was like, I had to wake up to eat the dinner. I was so tired. Oh. <laughs> But people were taking care of me in a way that here, like you'd never make tea for anyone but yourself or in many of these European places is, shall we put a pot of tea on? Mm -hmm. Like it's about the experience of eating together, of being together. And it's not because of who we are. I don't think it's because of our system. I think they're less anxious about the fact that they don't have health care, that they don't have a place that they can afford to live. I I feel, this is my experience, I feel as if people are more relaxed there because their needs are met and then they can have this time to eat and recognize one another and sit in cafes and it's not like oh, shit, stressed out mm-hmm. all the time i want to be there that's yeah, where i want to be i'm with you um one of the things that i notice in in your work and and in some of your experiences there's definitely an emphasis on ritual and i'm curious if if over the years have you developed a, a set of rituals for yourself that that help you either on a daily basis or help you with these transitions? That's a great idea for a transition ritual. I like that. I mean, I've been burning just because I've been cutting the rosemary and sage back here where I am. I'm living at the moment. Um, I've been burning it. So, you know, after my mother's death, I spent some time um, with fire and that um, ritual. So my mother was Catholic and we were raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, Catholic girls school. So it certainly was a lot of like exposure to ritual um, which I I, partic- I I I definitely appreciate now. Um, ah, I remember the smell. You know, the incenser would be swung, and I was just waiting. It would take a while, but for the scent to get to where you were, incredible the connection between that thing, that space, and now my nose. And it's like very spiritual that this thing's coming through your body, even if someone's smoking. Right? That that you're sharing the same air. It's kind of incredible. Uh, so the ritual. I look for ritual, I make ritual, 
um, I did a fasting project thinking that, oh, I just don't know how to receive things. I'm going to prepare to receive by, by uh, fasting for 15 days. It'll be 30 days if no one feeds me, but 15 days, and then I'll have a fast breaking. And if people feed me, then I'll eat for the next 15 days. And I, it was called hunger. And uh, I really wanted to be hungry so that I could be ready to receive. <laughs> I had tried this once before to make a prayer, and I, I didn't know how to make a prayer. I was like, how do you make a prayer? <laughs> I tried to look things up and add things together, and it didn't work. But this time, without even wanting to make a prayer, a prayer came to me when I, when I was eating my food. It was a very sacred thing to eat food after 15 days of eating nothing, just water and a little bit of salt. And a prayer came to me that still works to this day. Um, and when I say it, my feet go on the ground, I sit up straight, and I generally look out a window and focus on something natural, like a cloud or a tree. It just happens. I don't try to do this. And I say, I am open to receiving everything the universe has to offer at this moment in gratitude. The gratitude that I felt, or really it was like two bags of groceries. <laughs> what people probably come home, you know, from their daily shop or their weekly shop with much more than that. But for me, that was just so I was worthy of all these things like rainwater and shard from a garden and a bar of chocolate and a leek. Like it was just so beautiful um, because of my state, because of what I had gone through to get there. I could feel the shape of my stomach. Uh, I knew at that moment eating those things what my body needed. And I knew exactly how my body reacted to these things. Like carrot juice was gold. Um, and, and, chicken broth and avocado, those things were so nourishing and so good. And then I remember trying bread and bread, my body reacted very differently to bread. It wanted more bread, like it was grabby around the bread. And then I tried some chocolate. I was, I wouldn't have put these things in my diet for the next 15 days, but people gave them to me. And so I ate what they gave. And uh, the chocolate was like, definitely like drugs. <laughs> I was hiding it for myself, like, oh, I shouldn't have more of that shit. I didn't hide the leak from me. I didn't hide the carrot juice. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh my God, yes, I can feel that. It feels so good. Oh. And then I put it away. So like, how interesting to know. And so a question that persists for me from that is, how is it that we know what's good for us? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean good for us as in, you know, goody two shoes, or it's like, I know sitting meditation mm -hmm. makes me feel whole and calm. How is it that I know that you know, these things, foods and activities are good for me and I choose not to do them. And what is it that I choose to do? Long ago, it was, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer when I was in my 20s. Like, what is that wanting to be something that you're not? And then when you are a writer and you need to write, you're just writing. It's not like, I want to be a writer. You're just, you're a writer because you're writing and you didn't have to make yourself write. So I'm very, I'm always curious as an artist about what it is we're doing, what is it we want to be doing and what's, what's, yeah, the difference between that desire. Why are we desiring? Well, and I love that. That's such an interesting thought of, again, being in transition. We usually, there's a tendency to look for new things or to fill in some ways, to add on during transition, to add mm. something new. And and maybe what we really need is to eliminate and keep eliminating and seeing what it feels like to eliminate and, you know, and observe what changes that creates in us. Um, such interesting. Mm. Well, I could I could do this all day. Like there, I really could do this all day with you. But um, and for those of us who are are going about your day and being kind enough to to listen to the podcast, um, what's on the horizon for you? Do you know like what the next project will be? 
or something that's coming up in the future? Oh, yeah. I have been struggling to find a way to make it, but I, I need to find a way, um, possibly get some help with making a, a vest um, that to carry my mother's ashes in that I wear. So the idea of a weighted jacket, like a comfortable hug. Um, my mother passed away the day after Christmas last year, somewhat unexpectedly. Um, she was a healthy 82-year-old person that was having some difficulties, but nothing like, yeah. So, um, and, and I have this idea that I'm going to walk around Mount Adams with her. Um, I'm going to carry her and I have a spool of yarn on my head that I'm pulling off slowly and, and knitting into a tail of grief. Um, and mm -hmm. there are some things that I don't know about that. I've done some, some research and I've done some small walks with it, but it feels amazing to be walking and have your hands taken up with an activity and to have something on your head that keeps your head straight, it just, it forms a very good meditation already. Um, and the idea that I'm walking with mom, who I've wanted to walk with in an artwork. So that's coming up. And then, you know, determining whether I can deeply dive into walking across America is, is mm -hmm. a, it's a scary thing. It's the scariest thing I can imagine. And I, I like moving towards scary things, but how do I fund that? And what am I doing along the way? And yeah, as a woman, a white woman in America, even that, I'm scared. Not because of the news, but because I've been in the back country, you're safe. In the front country, you're safe. But in between mm -hmm. those two, that transitional space, it's a very, there's some eerie spaces, these industrial mm -hmm. and, yeah, forest service mm -hmm. lands. Like, you're out there. You're really out there. And anything, anyone could come driving along. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so possibly those two things. And then, of course, my sailboat and getting situated here. Well, selfishly, I'm just going to keep asking and hoping that you find ways or the world finds ways to help document what you do just because I want to follow it. Um, I, I appreciate that sometimes a limited audience has as much or more impact, but I selfishly want to come along too, and I don't get to be in Seattle or I might not be on the V of love when you come by. So um, <laughs> I want to know what happens there. So. Thank you. Thank you. I will take that as encouragement and I will work hard to make sure that happens too. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was really, really an honor. For me as well. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Thank you for joining me. You can find Mimi on Instagram at akmimiallen, that's A-K-M-I-M-I-A-L-L-I-N, or her website, akmimiallen.weebly.com. Thank you all for joining me today. I want to thank all of you who take the time to comment on an episode or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Ashley, thank you for sharing how the interview with Liz Murphy in episode number 20, quote, really hit a creative button. I love the idea that we all have our own creative button, kind of like a candy bending machine with all kinds of flavors to choose from. I hope some of these interviews will push your creative button and that it will be like this one time in art school when I held the candy machine button for the M&Ms, my favorite, and they just kept pouring out. It was like I hit the jackpot in Vegas, maybe even better. I had to stay up late that night. Anyway, until next time, stay kind. Stay positive and keep swimming. <laughs>